This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. Hard to record an award-winning podcast with my boyfriend showering in the room next door. What are you running your mouth about? <laughs> At first I was like, it's it's raining. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all those real-life creeps from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen Williams, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm MoGab, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. This is the first episode where I have not had any liquid courage so far. So if it's a total flop... And we know why. why. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. What are you telling me about today? Today, I'm going to tell you how not to investigate a rape. The information for this episode comes from the article, An Unbelievable Story of Rape by T. Christian Miller and Ken Armstrong. They also wrote a book about the case called False Report, A True Story of Rape in America. And the case was also covered by this tiny podcast no one's ever heard of called uh, This American Life, uh, episode 581, Anatomy of a Doubt. Anatomy Why do I feel doubt. like that's sarcasm? <laughs> because it's like the biggest podcast? podcast of all time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's also a show on Netflix based on this case, like a fictionalized version called Unbelievable, but I haven't watched it. I didn't want to get mixed up like what happened in the show with what actually happened, but I have heard that the show did a really good job of following the case pretty closely. So after we record this, I might watch it. Man, after. interesting. Yeah. 
Right off the bat, I'm going to give a warning that this case does deal with sexual assault. And so if that is a trigger for you, please proceed with caution. Always protect your mental health. Uh, I'm not going to go into any graphic details, but all the same, I wanted to just put that warning out there. I think this is probably one of the most important stories I have ever read. And I mean important in the way that every single person should know this case. And that's really why I wanted to talk about it today for all of our 14 listeners. Welcome. I might be generous. <laughs> might be. This story, uh, this story begins with a girl named Marie. Marie grew up in foster care. Her childhood was a haze of bad memories, of being hungry and eating dog food, of being sexually assaulted as a young child, of not remembering if she went to kindergarten. She entered foster care at six or seven and went through a series of foster homes, just one after another. When she was about to start high school, she went to live with a foster mom named Shannon for a couple of weeks until they could find a more permanent home for her. She stayed in touch with Shannon, though, because they each felt as if they'd found a kindred spirit. They both loved to goof around and be silly and laugh. After Shannon's house, she was placed with Peggy, who she lived with from age 16 to 18. Peggy was more stern than Shannon, and at first they didn't quite fit, but eventually they grew to really love each other, and Marie would become very close with Peggy. Do we know why she left Shannon's if they were kindred spirits? So Shannon was just meant to be like a temporary home. She just didn't have the capacity to keep her long term. So she was kind of an emergency placement with Shannon. And then uh, until they were able to find a permanent home for her with Peggy. Marie seemed like a typical high school kid, despite the trauma of foster care throughout her life. She liked boys and music and art and wanted to fit in with the other kids. Peggy describes her as really bubbly and just full of life, but says there were moments where she could be really intense, which find me a teenager that doesn't have moments of intensity. Right. They also described Marie's personality as almost histrionic, meaning she was very attention seeking. She was loud and flirty and goofy and loved drawing attention to herself. I mean, I just feel like you're talking about me and I see. <laughs> I know I have in my notes. She sounds awesome. Yeah. In high school, Marie had a best friend who got her into photography. She says they would spend hours at the beach taking pictures, and it was the happiest time she could remember. In 2008, she turned 18 and aged out of foster care. Peggy found an organization called The Ladder Project that helps foster kids make the transition to adulthood. It was only in its second year, and it provides subsidized housing with each member getting a one-bedroom apartment. So That's she was really cool. Yeah, it is really cool. Um, so it's for the, the foster child now that they're 18, it kind of helps get them on their feet. Right, because it's really hard when you don't have a support system uh, and you age out. And now, at least I know in Texas, because I actually did just take foster classes. I just finished to make my house a foster home. And I know that... so awesome. It, thanks. I know in Texas, you can choose to extend staying under the foster care umbrella until you're 21 they leave that choice up to the to the kid but this is taking place in Washington and I'm not sure about their laws there but it did say that she aged out at 18 and so they turned to this organization that helps foster kids find housing so does that mean that Peggy never officially adopted her because if she did then she would just kind of Right, yeah, Peggy did not adopt okay. her. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So she was able to get a slot in the program and they secured her an apartment at the Alderbrook apartment complex in Linwood, Washington, which is just north of Seattle. And then one morning, just a few months after Marie moved into the apartment, she called Peggy. She said she'd been raped. She said she woke up to find a man in her apartment with a knife, which is the worst nightmare of any woman who lives alone. Yeah. She says the man tied her up with shoelaces, blindfolded and gagged her and raped her. So this was really the stranger danger thing where, you know, typically they talk about how it's someone that you know or you've come in contact with, but this sounds like truly someone broke into her apartment. Yes. I would say that uh, rapes by strangers, kidnappings by strangers, those things are all very rare, but this is what she is saying. She said he told her not to leave her sliding glass door unlocked again as he left. She managed to get a pair of scissors and cut herself free and called her boyfriend, Jordan, who didn't answer. So she made the call to Peggy, who left immediately to come to Marie. And then she called an upstairs neighbor who came and called 911. By the time police came, Peggy was there with her, as was Wayne Nash, who was her case manager for the ladder project. So she called him also? Yes. Does the ladder project pay for their rent? It subsidizes their rent. So they get a break, but they, she still had a job. She worked at Costco. It doesn't just provide subsidized housing. It's also supposed to provide uh, support, help with opening bank accounts and all of these things that you have to do when you're an adult and don't necessarily know how to do if you haven't had a family to help you figure those things out. Right. Makes sense. Police questioned her and through their questioning, Marie was able to put together that everything the rapist used had come from her apartment. She was tied up with her shoelaces from her sneakers in the living room. It was her knife from the kitchen. She told police he took pictures of her. As police processed the scene, Peggy watched Marie. The more she watched her, the more suspicious she became. Suspicious that Marie had made the whole thing up. She said she was super giggly and was just not acting the way a rape victim should act. Again, that goes back to what we talked about in the last episode, about how do you predict how someone who's been through something traumatic is going to respond. Yes, we will definitely get into that. (laughs) (sighs) Shannon said the same thing. Marie called her the day police came, and Shannon said she told her she'd been raped, but that she was emotionless. Shannon said Marie should have been hysterical or at least upset, and because she wasn't, it caused her to doubt her story, which drives me absolutely crazy. False reports of rape do happen, but people seem to think most people reporting rapes are lying. I remember this conversation I had one time. It was one of those conversations where a year later, I'm still lying in bed thinking about it, wishing that I had said the right thing. You know, I I have the right right thing to say now. And this was one of those conversations. I was in Germany and we were at a beer garden when it started to rain. So we all ran under these umbrellas. And while we were hiding out in the rain, we started talking to this guy who was around my age and he lived on the road, a very vagabond lifestyle. And I thought he was super interesting until the Me Too movement came up. And he told me to my face in the most patronizing way possible that it was proven that 75% of reported rapes are false reports. What? And the way he said it was like, ooh, oh, shucks, I'm really sorry to have to break this to you. Ooh. Ah. 
And in that moment, I knew that that statistic was wrong, but I didn't have the correct statistics to back it up. I was in Germany, so I didn't have data on my phone and I couldn't look it up. So all I said I was going to say, you're so quick to be like, actually, oh my gosh, I, 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 every thought going through my head was, because everybody was looking at me. I, I was with my my dad and my uh, godparents and everybody was looking at me like, like, what's she going to say? <laughs> you know? yeah. And, and I, I just, would have been concerned. <laughs> yes. I was and I just really wanted to know the facts so that I could actually give them to him. And I didn't. So all I said at the time was, well, I'd have to read that report to know. And he was like, oh yeah, of course. I have searched high and low for this report, and as far as I can tell, it does not exist. And like I said, I have replayed this conversation over and over and over in my head for a year. Like my trip to Germany was in the summer of 2019, and I still can't get over it because it makes me so mad. Because he was mansplaining the Me Too movement to you. (laughs) Incorrectly. Exactly. Because I really wish that I knew then what I know now. And what I know now is that every organization that has studied false reports of rape from the FBI to independent social scientists says that the number is in the single digits, somewhere between five to 9%, like a far cry from this 75% this guy was claiming. Let's go find him and tell him. Oh, I want to so bad. He's listening to this podcast right now. I know he is. (laughs) That's why we started this podcast, actually. He's also been, exactly. He's also been dwelling. Also been dwelling on that conversation for a year. But I I brought that up because I think the fact that these two women, her foster mothers, they were people that cared very deeply of her. And the fact that they were looking for reasons to doubt her story, whether consciously or subconsciously, I think that it shows that it's a problem that people believe that false reporting is a common thing. I'm sure this guy that I talked to is not the only person out there that thinks it's a, a this common thing that women are just going around crying rape. For sure. And I think, too, you saying it's these two women who knew her and cared about her, it almost makes me think that gives them more validity in a sense of they know her baseline behavior. You know, they know what would make her upset or what would make her giggly. And so to them, they are the most informed, they, they think, or others would think. Yes, yes, you would hope so. But something they say again and again and again, because in This American Life, they actually do interview Peggy and Shannon. They're on the podcast. Something they say over and over again in the podcast, in the article, in the book is, well, if it were me, I wouldn't have been acting that way. And You don't know that. It, 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 she's not you. Yeah, you don't she, know that. And thank goodness it's not you and you... I have no idea how you would behave. Yes. I'm not saying that false reports never happen. Apparently, they happen between 5 and 9% of the time. But what I'm saying is that it should not be your first conclusion. Listen to all women that report rape. Listen to them and investigate. But that's not what happened here. Marie was taken to the hospital and a rape kit was performed. They noted abrasions on her wrists and vagina. Peggy and Shannon started talking amongst themselves, and they both discovered that the other did not believe Marie's rape story. 
They didn't think shoelaces were strong enough to bind her. They thought her story was too outrageous. They thought she was just trying to get attention, as she often did. Shannon tells the story that really sealed the deal for her. She took Marie shopping to replace her sheets as the police had taken them as evidence. They were at the department store and Marie starts throwing an absolute fit because they didn't have the same sheets that she had. She says she really liked those sheets. She wanted the exact same sheets and she got really upset when she couldn't get them. And Shannon says... She knew then that Marie was lying because why would you want the same sheets you had been raped on? Why would you want a reminder of what had happened to you? And to me, I can see it as I really liked those sheets and not having them on my bed is a constant reminder of what happened to me. The fact that my sheets are different. Yeah. And take it back. Like you, like there's some like power in being able to say like, I'm not having to change something that I enjoy because you gave me this terrible nightmare, this memory. Like I want this item and I should be able to have that. And you shouldn't be able to rob me of that. I am starting to become not a big Peggy and Shannon fan. (laughs) The shoelace like idea is crazy. It will be very hard. I I really tried hard not to judge the people in this case, because I do also believe that every person besides the rapist in this case was truly doing what they thought was best. I I don't believe there's a malicious person in this story. Right. But so I tried really hard not to judge these people, but it gets really hard not to judge Peggy and not to judge the investigation, uh, the the head of the investigation. Well, you're a better person than me. <laughs> I, I see what you're saying. In the, in the moment, they all think that they are correct and doing the right thing, but... I'm going to have to quit doing these on the weekend. You're getting me fired up. I know. I know. So Shannon spoke to Peggy after this incident with the sheets, and Peggy decided she needed to warn the police officers. She didn't want them wasting their time investigating this rape when she knew in her gut that Marie was lying. I know. Your jaw, (laughs) your face right now is how I feel. Your jaw is like wide open. So she called and she spoke to the detective in charge of the case, Sergeant Jeffrey Mason. Mason was 39 years old at the time, and he had spent most of his time on the force in narcotics. This was maybe his second rape case that he'd ever investigated. So to say he knew next to nothing is not an exaggeration. But what's most frustrating is that this is 2008. There were already protocols developed by sex crime specialists that detailed common missteps when investigating rapes. These protocols were available to all police departments. As I go through this investigation, I want you to see how many missteps they make. (laughs) (laughs) By counting your fingers, it looks like there's about eight missteps you're going to tell me about. I mean, at least. Um, I'm going to quote, I'm going to go through some of these protocols and I'm just going to quote straight from the article, An Unbelievable Story of Rape, because I want to make sure the information is accurate. One guide advised that you should not assume that a true victim will be hysterical rather than calm, able to show clear signs of physical injury, and certain of every detail. Some victims confuse fine points or even recant. Police should not interrogate victims or threaten to use a polygraph device. Lie detectors are especially unreliable with people who have been traumatized and can destroy the victim's trust in law enforcement. 
the episode of This American Life actually said that departments can actually lose federal funding if they're found to have used a polygraph on a rape victim. So they take it very seriously. Wow, I didn't know that. I didn't either. But I also didn't know that that would even be considered an option. Well, yeah. To, to give a polygraph to a rape victim. It's also impossible to predict a person's response to trauma. Yeah, that's what we talked about earlier. Yeah, a rape victim might be hysterical or they might be calm. They might want to tell no one what happened or they might want to tell as many people as they can. They might be upset and devastated or they might be seemingly emotionless. Like we said earlier, you can't say what a normal response to trauma is. Every person's response to trauma is normal. So we've got to quit trying to like put victims' behavior in this box. We talked about how police officers in the last episode, how police officers aren't specialists in behavior or anything like that. They don't know. Right. Yes. We also talked in the Richard Glossop episode how you can use behavior maybe to corroborate evidence, but it shouldn't be evidence. And it often is. So Peggy calls the lead detective, Sergeant Mason, and tells him she thinks Marie made the whole thing up. She doesn't think she was raped at all, which I just can't even believe. It's one thing to not believe her and just let the police do their work and kind of keep your suspicions to yourself. Um, but it's another to try to stop an investigation from even happening. She even says she's angry the police put so much weight behind her call, which drives me crazy because that sounds like distancing language. You know, that's not right. really taking responsibility for your part in it. Yes, they shouldn't have taken it so seriously, but Sergeant Mason did put a lot of weight behind Peggy's call. He started going over Marie's statements and noticed that details changed from what was in the report to what she had told Mason. Things like in the police report saying she tried to call her boyfriend Jordan while she was still tied up and then telling Mason she'd called Jordan after she'd untied herself. He told his partner in the case, Rick Garn, that based on these inconsistencies and the call from Peggy, he believed she'd made the whole story up because apparently he hadn't read that memo about it being common among rape victims to mix up small details like that. So when he called her to say he wanted to talk to her, she asked him if she was in trouble. And he says in his experience, if someone asks if they're in trouble, they are. And as a teacher, I would like to refute that 100% because anytime I call a kid over to me, especially if I use a certain tone of voice, they assume they're in trouble, even when they've done nothing wrong. If I have to say- Yeah, my boyfriend would agree with that also. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And it's not that every person is just running around doing bad stuff. Like they're afraid they don't want to be in trouble. Right. So she comes in and he grills her on these inconsistent statements. And Marie said she didn't realize she'd given any. He had her go through her story again. And this time she only said she believed it happened, not that she was certain. Rick Garn said the evidence didn't match her statements, which I'm pretty sure isn't even true. She had the physical injuries to match, and they haven't e even processed the evidence from the crime scene or her rape kit. I was just about to say, what about the kit? Yeah. In fact, they would end up destroying all the evidence in her case before <gasps> they processed any of it. What? I'm, I'm done. I'm, <laughs> I'm done with this. I don't want to. No. I know. I'm taking my AirPods out. I'm done. <laughs> Wait, come back. I'm not finished. It does get better. It gets worse, but so Rick Garn 
gets way worse and then it gets better. Rick Garn asks her if there's really a rapist out there they should be looking for and Marie says no. Without Mirandizing her or letting her know of her rights, he hands her a piece of paper and tells her to admit that she lied and made it all up. She writes it down, but she says she dreamed it happened. The officers don't like this and they make her write it again, but this time they tell her to make sure to say that she was lying, not that she dreamed it. So Marie does. She writes it down. She wanted it to be over. She told her case manager at the ladder project what happened, and she told him she wanted to get a lawyer. Well, and now she's scared. She wrote it down, too, because now she's scared she's going to get in trouble. Right. Right. And well, and it's like, okay, this horrific thing happened to me, and I don't want to deal with it anymore. And you're telling me that it didn't happen, and maybe it didn't happen. That guide also said it's common for rape victims to recant. So, so she told her case manager at Project Ladder what happened, and she told him that she wanted a lawyer. Instead, the case manager called the police, who told him Marie admitted to fabricating the entire story. But Marie wasn't done, because she hadn't lied. Now that she'd gotten away from the station and gotten some clarity, she knew she'd been telling the truth, so she calls the police back and tells them such, and this is what they tell her. They tell her they will make her take a polygraph test. They tell her no one's read the rule book. No one's reading the rule book. No. Read the rules. They tell her if she fails the polygraph test, she will be charged with making a false report and she will go to jail. And they will recommend to the latter project that they pull her housing assistance. (gasps) Did she still want to report that rape? Marie did not want to go to jail or lose her housing. So she said no. They charged her with making a false report anyway. I was just, I know. I know. It's infuriating. I mean, it, I'm sure this happens more than we know. That's what I will say. Yeah. The FBI says investigators must work as hard to prove something false as they would to prove something true before they charge someone with false reporting. And usually that only happens in rape cases where a suspect's reputation has been harmed. Like when a woman accuses a specific person of rape and then through their investigation, it re- it's revealed that it wasn't true. This makes but, me think of like the famous people or the athletes. Right. You know, yes, the- Exactly. And, and in those cases, I want to make it clear, the people that have accused celebrities of sexual assault, it's not that they should be charged with a false report just because there's no evidence or proof, because evidence and proof is very hard in rape. Right. This is an outstanding case because there actually was evidence. But a lot of times there's not. So that doesn't mean that the person should be charged with a false report. That means that they need to prove that that person was lying before they charge them with a false report. Yeah, they need to prove that it was false, which we talked to, you know, it's hard to prove that you weren't doing something or you weren't somewhere. Yes, absolutely. And that wasn't even the case here. The, The rapist was still unknown. But they just didn't investigate at all. Instead, with the charge of false reporting, they were able to close the case and get rid of all the evidence. 
That includes... So that they destroyed the evidence because to them the case was closed. Including destroying her rape kit, which we'll get into rape kits at the end, but they're very invasive. They can be a trauma all on their own. Like I'm traumatized mm-hmm. for a year just going to the OBG. So yeah. ha- having a rape kit done is a very difficult thing to go through and destroying one before you test it just feels like such a violation. Oh, I mean, how that has to be illegal, I feel like, right? I mean, I guess that's destroying evidence, but... No, because yeah. once you close a case, yeah. you know, the news gets a hold of this story and they report about how Marie cried wolf, lied about being raped, she starts getting harassed constantly. Her best friend from high school, the one that they used to go to the beach and take pictures and got her into photography, yeah, she created a MySpace page all about how Marie had made up a story of getting raped with her name, pictures of her, oh. and a copy of the police report with Marie's written statement about making it up. That's not and, what friends do. It's awful. When Marie found out about it, she trashed her entire apartment. She was so upset. <laughs> Then the latter project takes it a step further. They bring in all the kids in the project and have them sit in a big circle. Then they make Marie tell them all about how she made up a story of getting raped. They said if she what? didn't they said if she didn't admit to what she did in front of all of them, they would pull her from the program. The others in the group were angry at her for lying, and they would go on to harass her, yelling cruel things at her anytime they saw her. Shannon's husband became fearful of Marie accusing him of rape and said he didn't feel comfortable having her over at the house anymore. Marie quit her job at Costco, unable to manage it with the mental strain of everything else. And then she had to deal with the charges now filed against her. She went to court and ended up taking a plea deal where she would have to get mental health counseling, not for being raped, but for making it up. She would have to go on supervised probation. She couldn't break any more laws, and she had to pay $500. That just pains me. Like She couldn't break any more laws. She didn't. Right. I should make it very clear at this point in the story, there is incontrovertible evidence that Marie was definitely raped in the way she said she was. She was not lying. And for reporting her rape, she was charged $500. Shannon sees a news report about a rape in Kirkland, which is another suburb of Seattle, of a 63-year-old woman who lived alone, getting raped by a man who wore gloves, held a knife, and tied the woman up with her own shoelaces. How, how long? How, how far? Uh, how long after? Not long. A little while. I'm not exactly sure. He also took pictures of her. The story matched with Marie's story so exactly. Suddenly, Shannon wondered if she hadn't made a terrible mistake, and she called Marie. She told Marie that she should call the police and tell them the Kirkland, ca- the Kirkland rape was just like hers. But Marie didn't want to. Yeah, of course she doesn't. Of course Buzz off, she doesn't. Buzz off. And Shannon says that this made her doubt her story again. Again, of course. I just wonder how someone could be so ignorant, maybe is the right word, to think that it must be because she's lying that she doesn't want to go to the police and not that she's afraid of going to jail because that's what she was uh, threatened with before. 
and losing her housing. I mean, where's the empathy here? And where's the trust? Like, right. she has no trust in the police that they're going to help her. So why would she want to reach out to them? So Marie doesn't All they've say done is made it worse, honestly. She paid $500. She had criminal charges. She had to go to court. She, the police have made it... They right. couldn't have possibly made it any worse. So Marie doesn't say anything. She wants to move on. But it's hard. Two years go by. And this case gets worse, but then it gets a whole lot better. In 2011, over in Golden, Colorado, which is a suburb of Denver, Detective Stacy Galbraith was called to an apartment complex to investigate a rape. Galbraith said she has a rule when investigating a rape crime because the first thing an investigative officer of any crime has to do is figure out if the victim reporting the crime is telling the truth. So her rule is simple. Listen and verify. Here's a quote from her from the article, An Unbelievable Story of Rape. A lot of times people say, believe your victim, believe your victim. But I don't think that's the right standpoint. I think it's listen to your victim and then corroborate or refute based on how things go. Which I couldn't agree with more. Listen to all women, listen to their stories and investigate it. Look for evidence. <laughs> when Galbraith arrived at the apartment, the woman appeared calm and unflustered and recounted her story to Galbraith in a very unemotional way with a lot of details, which in Galbraith's long history of investigating rape cases, maybe around 50 at this point, struck her as out of the normal. But notice how she doesn't leap to the conclusion of lying. Lying, right. Instead, she investigates. She listens to the 26-year-old tell her how she'd been alone in her apartment when she was awakened by a man jumping on her back, pinning her down. He wore a black scarf fastened tight around his face, and he had a gun. He tied her hands behind her back and for four hours repeatedly raped her. Oh, my God. He took pictures of her with a pink Sony camera and threatened to post them online if she called the police. He made her shower and brush her teeth, and while she was in the bathroom, he took her sheets, bedding, and left. She described him as a gentleman. He explained to her how he had broken in and he gave her tips that would keep someone else from doing the same thing. And she said he'd had a unique birthmark on his leg the size and shape of an egg. Galbraith went into action. She took the girl to a nearby hospital to collect any DNA that might be left after her shower and then returned to the girl's apartment to continue the investigation. They talked to neighbors, photographed the crime scene, dug through the trash, and swabbed everywhere possible for DNA. And then they did not destroy the evidence. Oh, that seems like a key point of the story here. It, yeah, you know, it, the, it's the little things that really help mm -hmm. you solve a case. Yeah. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day -day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? 
If not, you have to start the process all over again. If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Creepers. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine, but the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pros custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. When she got home, her thoughts were on this man and how she was going to find him. She spoke to her husband, David, about it. And as he listened, he told her to call his department the first thing in the morning because they had a case just like it. The next morning, a detective for the Westminster Police Department, Edna Henderson, got an email from Galbraith with the subject line, sex assault similar, question mark. As she read the email, it felt all too familiar as she remembered a rape case she had investigated five months before in August of 2010. It was the rape of a 59-year-old woman who had been recently widowed, She was asleep alone in her apartment when a man jumped on her back. He wore a mask. He tied her hands. He took pictures of her with a pink Sony camera, with her pink Sony camera that he then stole from her. He made her shower afterwards and told her, I guess you won't leave your windows open in the future. Henderson's mind then jumped to a case in Aurora, another Denver suburb, but on the other side of the city. An officer in Aurora, Detective Scott Burgess, had told Henderson about a 65-year-old woman, a house mother at a local fraternity, who had reported being raped by a man in her apartment. She said the man wore a black scarf wrapped around his face. He tied her hands with ribbon and took pictures of her, threatening to post them to the internet. So we all know from watching too much Law & Order that police jurisdictions often have pissing contests over cases. They're rarely willing to work together or give information to other departments that they feel could then be leaked and jeopardize their investigation. Right. This rapist must have watched a lot of, a lot of Law & Order too because he was bouncing around from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, never hitting the same one twice. 
So Henderson realizes that in this case, she needs to collaborate with other departments, and Galbraith realized that too. They were both part of pretty small departments, and it just made sense for the two of them to team up. Soon, Henderson, Galbraith, and Burgess met up to discuss their cases and compare investigations. The descriptions of the attacker and his methods were so similar, but what really sealed the deal was the camera. Galbraith's victim had said the man had taken pictures of her with a pink Sony digital camera. Very Henderson, specific. Yes. She was also the victim that noticed the um, birthmark on his leg. Right. She was very detail-oriented person. Henderson's victim had had a pink Sony digital camera stolen from her during her attack after he used it to take pictures of her. Henderson and Galbraith bonded quickly over this case. As female detectives in an overwhelmingly male industry, both had managed to move up the ranks. They both had a yes, lot. Yes, girls, get I it. Know. Yes. They both had a lot of experience investigating rapes. As I said, Galbraith, who was the younger of the two, had investigated about 50, while Henderson was at about 100. Oh, my gosh. That's awful. It's awful that there's so many, but it's also awesome that they were so experienced, that they, right, were, yeah. that they put experienced people in charge of those cases. So they started working together, trying to find this attacker. They made a lot of attempts at tracking him, obtaining surveillance tapes at the entrance to the apartment complex of the victim in Golden, looking through the database meant to capture serial rapists, but it all turned up dead ends. The most they'd managed to get was a white Mazda pickup truck appearing on the surveillance tape at the apartment complex like 10 times in the middle of the night with an unreadable license plate, meaning they could not track the vehicle. Right. So they decided to broaden their scope, thinking maybe there were more attacks that they hadn't heard of. They landed on something in Lakewood, another suburb of Denver. It had been labeled a burglary, but when they looked at the case, it looked a lot like a failed rape attempt by their same guy. Oh. This, this woman, a 46-year-old artist, had been attacked in her apartment by a man in a black mask. She'd managed to escape, jumping seven feet down out of her bedroom window. She broke three ribs and punctured a lung, but she escaped. It was here, at that apartment, on the window ledge, that they found honeycomb marks, which stood out to Henderson because Westminster crime scene investigators had found similar markings on the window of that victim's apartment. They also were looking at shoe prints around the victim's windows. Oh, okay. At the time, there was a website called crimeshoe.com. It doesn't exist anymore, but at the time, you could send images of shoe prints in, and the website promised to identify the footwear. Oh. I know. Kind of, it's cool. It's kind of cool, that, but it's sad that it's not around anymore. I know. Like I waste a lot of time. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's just something like, I would get really sucked into, like helping identify. <laughs> They discovered the prints were made by a pair of Adidas ZX700 mesh shoes. They'd managed to connect four rapes that occurred over a 15-month period. So let me break those down real quick. First was the rape in Aurora, which was east of Denver, with the 65-year-old woman whose camera was stolen during the attack. Nine months later and 22 miles away, there was the attack of the artist in Lakewood, south of Denver. A month later was the 59-year-old woman in Westminster, north of Denver, and then was the attack on the 26-year-old in Golden, west of Denver. 
So the book, A False Report, it has maps of these attacks and it's literally like a big circle around Denver with enough mileage in between so that police wouldn't be able to put the attacks together very easily. Very strategic. Very strategic. The attacker had been very careful with his methods, making the women shower. He wore a condom. He took the bedding and the sheets. But they did manage to get three samples of touch DNA from three different crime scenes. Touch DNA is also called trace DNA, and it only requires very small samples, like from skin cells that you leave behind after you've touched something. I'm very curious, though, about how Maria's case goes into this, because her sheets were left mm-hmm. behind. You'll find out. Oh, stay tuned. <laughs> Unfortunately, the touch DNA had mixed results and only narrowed the field of suspects to males belonging to the same paternal family line. They didn't have enough to narrow it to one specific person, and therefore they couldn't use it in any sort of DNA database. Then, a young crime analyst from the Lakewood department told them she'd done a search of any suspicious vehicles close to the Lakewood victim's home and had discovered that three weeks before the Lakewood attempted rape, a woman had called police to report a suspicious truck parked on the street with a man inside. Police checked out the truck parked half a block from the Lakewood victim's house, but the man was gone. The truck was a 1993 white Mazda pickup registered to a Lakewood man named Mark Patrick O'Leary. Galbraith immediately knew it was their guy. What they pulled, a creep. They pulled up DMV pictures of the guy and saw he was 6'1", 32 years old, 220 pounds, with hazel eyes wearing a white t-shirt, a description that closely matched those provided by the victims. In fact, the DMV photo was taken hours after the Westminster rape. Like, he's like, rape in the morning, then I got to run by the DMV, take care of some errands. And the victim had said he'd been wearing a white T-shirt. It was all fitting together. <gasps> oh. And Henderson was excited, but she didn't want to jump to a for sure conclusion that they had their guy. They needed to put him under surveillance and do a little bit more investigating. They started researching him, doing Google searches, and they put FBI agents on his house. They were excited when they saw a man with O'Leary's description leave the house with a woman and head to a restaurant. And as soon as the couple left the restaurant, they raced in and grabbed the drinking cups so they could try and match the DNA. But then different FBI agents were at the house. They wanted to install cameras and knocked on the door to make sure no one was home. It was then that they discovered that Mark O'Leary had a brother. <gasps> a brother named Is Michael. Is it a twin? It's not a twin, but he looked a lot like him, and they lived together. And the problem with this is that the DNA they have can only narrow it down to members of the same paternal family line. So the DNA could not tell them which of the brothers was the rapist. But... The DNA did come back to say that it was for sure one of them because Galbraith had ruled out their father who lived in a different state and was too old to fit the description of the, by the victims. Well, which one of them has the egg? Mm. So Galbraith typed up a search warrant knowing exactly what she was looking for. A birthmark. Her, mm-hmm, her victim had been spot on with her details thus far, so she wanted to see his leg. She wanted to see which brother had a birthmark about the size and shape of an egg. I guess you, I didn't ever think you'd need a search warrant to be like, lift your pant leg. Yep. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. You do, and she got one. So it was yeah. good evidence, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so they go to the O'Leary's house, and Mark answers the door looking real confused and wearing a hoodie and baggy sweatpants. Lift your leg. Galbraith handed over the warrant, patted him down, and when she got to his legs, she pulled the pant leg up. And there it was, a dark birthmark the size of a large egg, exactly like the victim described. It was him confirmed. He was the rapist. She said it was really important to her that she be the one to arrest him. And so she did, saying he was under arrest for the rape in Golden. He immediately invoked his right to an attorney because he may be super garbage, but he's not an idiot. Super garbage. Inside, investigators found everything to back up their arrest. They found a pair of Adidas ZX700 shoes, gloves with a honeycomb pattern that matched the marks on the windows, a black head wrap, women's underwear stolen as trophies because he's gross, (sighs) a gun, a large backpack, and a pink pink Sony Sony camera. camera. Galbraith began going through the photos on O'Leary's computer, matching them by sight to the victims. But there was one victim she didn't recognize. A young woman, perhaps even a teenager. The photo was of her looking terrified, bound and gagged, and Galbraith felt sick. There was another victim out there, one that she didn't know how to identify. So she continued looking through the images, and that was when she found a picture of this girl with her learner's permit across her chest possibly used as a way to further intimidate her by O'Leary. Yeah, it was like he was trying to say, look, like I have this picture now. I know where you live. I know your name. I have all this information on you. But now Galbraith also had both of those things. Her address was in Linwood, Washington. Her name was Marie. Mm. Mm. I'm freaking out. (laughs) I want to scream, but I recognize that would be loud in your headphones. I know. This whole part just gives me chills, like (gasps) goosebumps. O'Leary pleaded guilty to 28 counts of rape and other felonies in Colorado for the six total rapes he committed, the four in Colorado and the two in Washington. Remember, Marie's and the other one in Kirkland that Shannon had seen on the news. Mm -hmm. This is Washington State, now Washington, D.C. Correct, yes. Uh, Near Seattle. Got it. And he was sentenced to the maximum allowed, a whole 327 and a half years. Oh, I thought you were going to say days, and I was about to flip the laptop. I know. <laughs> I was like, I will flip this over and walk out. Yeah. Um, no, that would be that other case of, uh, what was that guy's name? Brock Turner. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what, I mean, literally, I feel like I hear that more than... Mm-hmm. Necessary. So, O'Leary was around 33 at the time of his arrest, uh, so he won't be released until he's uh, 350, 61 years old, 360 years old. He'll be dead. He will be dead. Marie's rape was his first. Oh my God! Where is she now? Well, tell me more. I will tell you, but think about that. Her rape was his first. All those women that were raped after her oh, could have been prevented damn. if they had bothered to investigate. Plus, he was sloppier with her. He didn't do all those extra measures like taking her sheets and bedding. Well, yeah, that's why I was wondering when you said that. Mm-hmm. But that oh was all God. destroyed. Yeah. So preventable. I O'Leary mean, well, even... 
Yes. He should have never done it in the first place, but. Right. But, but he did say that if Washington had paid a bit more attention to him, he probably would have been a person of interest earlier on. He said that? Yep. God, he's. Yep. Something else. An outside review was conducted of the investigation into Marie's case, and it was found that what happened was nothing short of the victim being coerced into admitting that she lied about the rape. Like every other false confession or whatever else. I mean, it's always pressure. Yes. The report stated that it wasn't surprising Marie had recanted, giving the, quote, bullying and hounding she was subjected to. Yeah, making her basically homeless. We're going to take your home. Yes, or I probably lie. I would probably lie for a lot less. No, you know, I mean, honestly, that's everything on the line. It went on to say that the detectives elevated minor inconsistencies. Was she tied up or untied when she made the call to police? Something that is common among victims. Yes, they turn these inconsistencies into discrepancies while ignoring the strong evidence that the crime had occurred. Regarding threatening jail and withdrawing her housing assistance if she failed a polygraph, the report stated these statements are coercive, cruel, and unbelievably unprofessional. I can't imagine any justification for making these statements. There also was an internal review conducted with similar conclusions. They found that Sergeant Mason was far too swayed by Peggy's phone call and said that their second interview with Marie was designed to elicit a confession of false reporting. Yeah. Of course. The current commander of Linwood's Criminal Investigations Division called Marie's case a major failing. He said, knowing that she went through that brutal attack and then we told her she lied, that's awful. We all got into this job to help people, not to hurt them. Another sergeant at Linwood said that Marie was victimized twice. Despite this, no one in the Linwood Police Department was disciplined which I have mixed feelings about, and here's why. When I first read this story, I was so frustrated and so angry that such a preventable thing had happened that I thought, for sure, this guy needs to be fired. He did detrimental, irreparable harm to Marie, and someone needs to be held accountable. Sergeant Mason is now back in narcotics, which it's good that he's nowhere near rape, But he has said, it wasn't her job to convince me. It was my job to get to the bottom of it, and and I didn't. He has never tried to defend his actions. He has always taken responsibility for them. And that's why I have these mixed feelings. I I really, really hated this guy reading this article at first. But he made a mistake. He knows he did a terrible job. He's learned from it. And... Should people be allowed to make mistakes and learn from them and grow? Yes, <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think that our all of our anger, right, is mm-hmm. at should be focused on the rapist. Did the did the police do this irreparable harm and make it harder and probably cause maybe additional? more rapes? Yeah. Sure, but the rapist did that. Yes. You know, I mean, yes. the, was the one going on. Well, and I think, uh, you know, I think that, I think that they need to hold the police accountable for doing their jobs. Mm-hmm. But does that accountability mean that they, they need to lose their job? Or does that accountability mean 
they need to have additional training. They need to understand what they did wrong. I think that's, I think that asking him to be fired would be revenge. Like the only, the only purpose of that would be revenge on Marie's behalf and Marie's not mm-hmm. crying for that, you know? So I don't think. Right. I was just to. about to say like, what is, you know, sometimes yeah. we get lost in like, what is they want? Yes. I, yes, Man. I agree. At the time, 21% of Linwood's rape cases were labeled unfounded, which is five times the national average of 4%. The agency has said they now investigate their cases much more vigorously than probably any other department and that they are extra careful they get the right closure. That doesn't sound like a real stat, extra careful. Extra careful. (laughs) Like, how do you Um, prove that? I guess by making sure you cross all your T's and dot every single I and you look under every stone and you don't make assumptions and you don't jump Mm -hmm. to conclusions. You don't make these giant leaps and then not even back it up. Yeah. I'm really not trying to blame anyone, but I do feel like the most detrimental piece of all of this, again, obviously it is the rapist. That is the one that caused the harm. Sure. But the phone call. I was going to say the phone call. I just can't get over like what how that like fast tracked I know um, you know this like idea that it was made up well and I can understand knowing somebody that has had a rough life and mm-hmm. is generally always trying to get attention and is loud but nothing that they ever said they never said she had a history of making stuff up to get attention. It was just like she was flirty and loud and that kind of thing. Like she would be inappropriate at times, but they never said that she had ever made something up before. So I can maybe see if you have somebody that it's the boy who cried wolf. You know, if you have a history of telling stories, you might think or a history of exaggerating or a history of just wanting attention. You might think to yourself, Ooh, I don't know if I believe them. But um, maybe just keep those, keep those thoughts to yourself and you don't need to share them with the police when yeah. you don't know, when you don't actually have the only evidence you have to support your claim is a feeling in your gut, you know, right. maybe keep that in your gut and let the police do their job and then see, you know, what happens. It is police job to investigate these crimes so it's not wasting their time to investigate them however if you are um you know making up a crime don't report it because that would be a waste (laughs) of time (laughs) you heard it here first so when was he arrested what um i think you told me but what was the date on that i'm just trying to see like because she this was in two i remember 2008 came up so I just trying to see where this was like, if if the Me Too movement was part of this, because you said there's a documentary and a podcast, like, was that part of Um, of this coming to light? No, this was in like 2000, I think 2012 at the latest. Okay. So it's, it's been about eight years. So it does predate that by several years. I know. I really want to go watch this Netflix show now. Marie had to live with being branded a liar for two and a half years until Linwood police found her and told her the news. Her rapist had been caught and arrested. They said her record was expunged and handed her a check for $500, a refund of her court costs she'd had to pay. That's it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Usually. 
Oh, just wait. Marie said she broke down, experiencing shock, relief, and anger all at once. Right. Shannon and Shannon and Peggy also both apologized to Marie, and she forgave them immediately. Peggy says she regrets calling the police, saying she feels that if she hadn't, the police would have done their jobs. And da, sorry, Peggy! Does, <laughs> does Marie know that they made the phone calls? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There, it's, it's definitely true they would have done their job. There was plenty of evidence that Marie was telling the truth. Which, I mean, there was a rape kit. Well, there was a rape kit. There was all, they abrasions. had swabbed for DNA. They had taken her sheets and her bedding, all of that. She, there was the abrasions on her. There was so much evidence that it had happened, which in all honesty, like we said before, is really rare in rape cases. And, you know, because of them, five more women were raped. So she wanted to talk to Sergeant Mason and they arranged a meeting. She says when they met, he was like rubbing his head and looking like he was super ashamed of what he'd done. He told her he was deeply sorry, and she says he seemed sincere. Marie sued the city and settled for $150,000, which she says was enough to start a new life for herself. She got a commercial driver's license and is now a long-haul trucker, and she's gotten married and has two kids. Hmm. And that is an unbelievable story of rape that is unbelievable but it could have been believable if we would have just believed right well if we would have just listened to her and investigated instead of uh, and followed those protocols knowing that a victim might mix up little details knowing that it's common for them to recant you can listen to them you can investigate you can see what turns up and um yeah maybe believe people I don't remember the stat, so I'm not going to try and like, you know, recite it. But there was something one time I read about how when you are listening to someone, you're already thinking about your response. I mean, I don't, I don't know if it was a stat, but you know, there's that saying of you're hearing someone and you're thinking about your response. And it's almost like in this case, I feel like she started talking and telling her story and people were already trying to figure out how to get out of doing the investigation or yeah, absolutely. In fact, it. while you were talking about that, I was thinking about my response, <laughs> which was you reminded me that I wanted to talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect, which I actually discovered on TikTok. And oh God, you have a TikTok? <laughs> of course, it's very entertaining. But there is this thing called the Dunning-Kruger effect. It is a cognitive bias in which people with a low ability at a task overestimate their ability to be able to do the task. So this <laughs> Yeah, whole- that's me every time I walk around Home Depot trying to figure out See, not me. I feel very inferior at Home Depot. I'm like I have that but it is me when I think about um <laughs> like I wanted to install cupboards in my mudroom. And I was like, I can build them from scratch. I could figure out how to do this. All I need to get is some tools. And then I went to Barnes and Noble and I got a book. Well, I looked at a book on um, (laughs) (laughs) because I did not end up buying it because I was. That's not where I thought you were going to go. So I went to Barnes and Noble. And I looked at a book uh, with instructions on how to build your own mudroom cabinets and realized it's incredibly complicated and I would have no idea what I'm doing. So I put that book back and I um, 
said, I'll buy it from Ikea. I can put Ikea yeah. furniture together. <laughs> That's about it. But I think that that kind of is where Sergeant Mason was at right now. You know, he had had lots of experience as a detective, but not with rape cases. And so I think that he inflated his own ability in his mind of, of his ability level to solve this case and his yeah. knowledge of crimes and the types of people that commit them and lie about them and all of that stuff that his, he was bringing his experience from narcotics into mm -hmm. a rape case where they really don't have any business being. Um, right. Like saying all the victims are the same or the suspects are the same. Or... Right. And there's a level of trauma associated with these cases that not saying that like a narcotics case wouldn't have, but isn't inherently there every time, like how it is with a, a sexual violence case. Yes. Yes. And, you know, that also makes me think like, yes, Marie had a difficult life, but thank God she wasn't a drug addict or a sex worker because oh, they probably wouldn't have even taken her sheets. You know, they probably would have they wouldn't have even taken her statement. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. No. Which is a whole other problem. And so every week, you know, I like to try to just kind of talk about some organization or some charity that's trying to help a problem with whatever we're talking about. And so for this episode, I really wanted to talk about End the Backlog. Have you heard of End the Backlog? I have not. Okay. It actually, I didn't really, I have heard about this for years, but it wasn't until recently that I realized that Mariska Hargaday is the founder of it, <laughs> the um, detective from SVU, from Law and Order SVU. I was like, you said that name like I should know it, but... Um, you should know it. She's in Taylor Swift's Bad Blood video, and Taylor Swift named her cat after yeah. her character in SVU. Okay. And That's how I would know that if I did know it would be from a Taylor Swift video and not because I actually watched SVU. So. You never watched SVU? No, for someone that's doing a true crime That is mind-boggling to me. There's like a thousand episodes and you've never watched it? Kristen, I'm scared of the dark, dude. <laughs> I changed my major from criminal justice to elementary education because I know that crimes usually don't happen during the day. I'm scared of the dark. I always wondered why you that. changed your major <laughs> like a year into so Then I worked with kindergartners, which really worked out well because they too are scared of the dark typically. Yes. And now you're not doing either of those things. Yeah, well. <laughs> Using the same skill set sometimes. Yeah, there you go. Oh, Stella's barking. So End the Backlog is a program of the Joyful Heart Foundation, which, as I said, is the um, nonprofit organization that was founded by Mariska Hargitay with the mission to transform society's response to sexual assault, domestic violence, and child abuse, support survivors' healings, and end this violence forever. So what is the backlog? I just copied this directly from their website. Every 73 seconds, someone is sexually assaulted in the United States. With the crime of sexual assault, the victim's body is a part of the crime scene. When the victim reports the assault to the police at a hospital or at a rape crisis center, the victim can choose to have a doctor or nurse photograph, photograph, swab, and conduct an invasive and exhaustive examination of the victim's entire body for DNA evidence left behind by the attacker, a process that takes four to six hours to complete. And that's what I was talking about when I said how violating it is that they destroyed Marie's rape case in that 
in that case. That evidence is collected and preserved in a sexual assault evidence kit commonly referred to as a rape kit. When tested, DNA evidence contained by rape kits can be an incredibly powerful tool to solve and prevent crime. It can identify an unknown assailant and confirm the presence of a known suspect. It can affirm the survivor's account of the attack and discredit the suspect. It can connect the suspect to other crime scenes and identify serial offenders. It can exonerate the wrongfully convicted. But to accomplish these things, rape kits, rape kits have to be tested. And it is estimated that hundreds of thousands of rape kits sit untested in police department and crime lab storage facilities across the country in what is known as the rape kit backlog. Why? Well, for two reasons. The first reason is that when rape kits are collected and booked into evidence, if detectives or prosecutors do not request DNA analysis, those kits just sit there on a shelf indefinitely. The second reason is that when they are requested, a lot of times rape kits that have been submitted for testing are awaiting DNA analysis and they are waiting a very, very long time. So this program and or organization and the backlog works to see reform in states' laws to solve this problem. And they've done an amazing job. So you can go to their website and the backlog.org and you can see how your state is handling their backlog. So I live in Texas and I when I looked this up, I was kind of scared because a lot of times Texas you know, if, if I'm looking up like ex, um, executions, you know, it's real sad. But when I looked this up, I was really proud of Texas because in 2011, Texas became the second state to enact a law that requires law enforcement agencies to send all newly collected kits to a crime lab for testing within 30 days. And yeah, they, Texas, I see you. Yeah, and they are working hard to test all of the backlogged kits. So then I looked up Kentucky, where you live. Oh, that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, they, Kentucky's doing even better than Texas. In 2016, they required a one-time statewide audit of untested rape kits. And in 2015, the state auditor announced at least 3,090 untested rape kits across the state. That was in 2015. Mm -hmm. Today, they have about 51 untested kits. Oh, my gosh. I feel like I could could volunteer and get those knocked out. (laughs) Like, tomorrow. Like, I feel like 51. Like, let's get it to zero. Let's just run that. Yeah, let's just run that. There are several states that are down to zero. It's very exciting to see that the work this organization has done into really making this happen. There are states that have not taken any steps to mm. end the backlog, mostly in... Feel free to out them and people can just go yeah, ahead and move. I'm pretty sure it was states, you know, like Alabama, Mississippi, oh. okay. places like that. So you can support End the Backlog at give.endthebacklog.org um, and you can check out their website. It's incredibly thorough. They have tons of information on there. It's really great. I also just have a plug, too, for anyone who has experienced sexual violence or knows someone who has. The National Sexual Violence Resource Center has a lot of great resources online, and you can learn more there. Uh, They also have done updates related to resources for COVID-19 and resources 
for people of color. So their website um, has a lot of things available if that is something you may be seeking. And it's nsvrc.org. And that's the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe to True Crime Creepers so you'll know exactly when our next episode drops, when I'll tell Mogab all about the Church of Scientology and how they use their scripture to justify ruining the lives of their detractors, but not us. (laughs) You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at creepers with an S pod, creepers pod. Or you can email us at creeperspod at gmail.com if you have case suggestions or you just want to say hi. Um, Please be sure to review us on iTunes and give us a five-star review. It will really help us grow this podcast. Bye, peeps and creeps. Bye.